0: To learn more about CODE, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E-Health.com, or email CODE directly at Partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today, I'll be talking with AR Exchange Managing Principal Jim Zadorian about patient-friendly payment and a new approach to price transparency. Later, HFMA's president and CEO, Joe Pfeiffer, joins me in the studio to talk about his new podcast, Cup of Joe. Finally, in a segment sponsored by Strata, we've got five ways healthcare organizations can prepare for the future with strategic planning. You can hear all of that after we check in with Rich and Chad for Beyond the News.
1: This is Rich Daly, senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hi, and this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA.
2: Thanks for joining us on the On the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. This week, we're going to talk about the financial impact on hospitals of the recently finalized public charge immigration rule changes. Earlier this month, the Department of Homeland Security issued a final rule that modified the definition of services that if used by immigrants would deem them a, quote, public charge, close quote and ineligible for permanent residency. The change added non-emergency Medicaid to the list of benefits that if an immigrant uses, would determine that they are a public charge and ineligible for residency if this service is used for more than 12 months of any 36-month period. The rule is set to take effect October 15th. It applies to immigrants trying to enter the U.S. and those already living here trying to obtain a green card. So, Chad, a lot has been written about the obvious potential impact of the rule change on immigrants, but the rule also could have effects on hospital finances.
1: What kinds of financial fallout should they be watching for? I think one of the things that's going to be challenging about this rule is in the current environment, it's a fairly broad expansion of the historic sort of definition of what impacts someone's ability to get a green card. But they also carve in and carve out different programs. So it wouldn't be hard, say, for someone who's seeking a green card citizen children to not end up participating in programs that they're eligible for and will have no impact on their parents' immigration status if they so if the child gets Medicaid, um, so I think you're going to see people tending to shy away. And as that that's going to have impacts on providers. You know, one of the other things to mention is the proposed rule or the final rule does not attach, public charge triggers to CHIP or ACA marketplace subsidies. Only the immigrants who depend on Medicaid are subject to the redefinition. So, for example, denial of green card status if you use Medicaid for which you know they're currently eligible for under the current law. I think one of the other things to kind of appreciate in terms of the change, just to kind of provide a little bit of more background, is that CMS really did expand the definition of what's historically been an immigration law as the likely to become a public charge determination, which is a ground of inadmissibility found for someone who's seeking green card status. And the final rule really redefined this in four important ways, but I think for purposes of this conversation, we're only going to cover two as they're kind of the germane ones to hospitals. And so in the early look at this,
2: I guess there's been some research um, that tried to uh, project forward some financial impacts on both uh, Medicaid in terms of total spending. uh, If you have uh, many immigrants uh, either accurately or inaccurately drop out of the program, that could flash forward to hospitals, which, of course, Medicaid,
1: which are the largest recipient of Medicaid funds. Um, So what do you see there? While the final rule as of today, which is August 28th, hasn't been modeled, Manette Health did some really good analysis on the proposed rule, and they found that the proposed rule would potentially impact 13.2 million Medicaid and CHIP beneficiaries. These enrollees accounted for about $68 billion worth of Medicaid and CHIP services in 2016. And because hospitals provided the substantial share of services to those beneficiaries, They estimated that the hit to hospitals could be as much as $17 billion. And that's a a one-year hit. Is that right? That's a one-year hit. That is correct. And, you know, you probably, Rich, if I asked you to guess the states that would be impacted by this, you could probably do it. But the analysis found that the biggest impact would fall on hospitals in Texas, Florida, California, Arizona, Nevada, Washington, New York, and New Jersey and some of the states with the obviously biggest Medicaid programs. Yeah. So uh, so what should providers be, be doing about this and, and maybe in, in preparation? Well, I, I think it's going to be important for providers to really understand the rule and understand what programs into what populations this rule impacts. Because if you think about it, you know, when you get into the financial counseling conversation, you've already got individuals who are already concerned because they have a health issue and they've probably shown up in the emergency room but they're also probably concerned about their immigration status or the immigration status of a loved one being impacted by this trip to the hospital. The other thing I think it's important to do is for hospitals to get out and work with groups in the community to help educate them that provide services to non-resident populations, because it's going to be important for those that are still eligible for programs and who won't have their immigration status impacted by participation in these programs to continue. Because obviously, you know, if you The classic example is if somebody doesn't have access to Medicaid, but they're eligible to it and it won't impact their immigration status, they let a chest cold drop into pneumonia, they end up in the ED, they end up admitted, it becomes a much more expensive service, and it also potentially becomes uncompensated care. So it's just a lose-lose all the way around. Hmm. I see. So
2: we're looking at possibly years of rolling effects but uh, that helps a lot to understand the issues. So uh, thanks for all those insights and for joining us today on the podcast, Chad. Yep, nope, my pleasure, Rich, as always. And keep up with the latest news developments in healthcare finance policy and practice by checking out our daily news site at hfma.org forward slash news.
1: Where do you go for help deciphering the latest regulations? HFMA, of course. As a member, you have exclusive access to peer-generated articles that make sense of ever-evolving policy changes and offer practical advice for navigating legislative landmines. Not yet a member? Join now. Visit hfma.org join to discover all the benefits of membership.
0: issue of HFM Magazine featured an article in which the author presented an innovative model for collection of patient payments, the philosophy behind it being that the financial experience should be as personalized as the clinical one. Today, I'm talking with that author, Jim Zadorian, Managing Principal of AR Exchange, about this idea as well as his thoughts about approaching price transparency. You talk about personalizing the patient experience when it comes to finance, just as the clinical experience is personalized. Why is this something providers should be thinking about?
3: Well, the 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 principal reason is is that the current way in which providers are interacting with patients is such that the patients just can't candidly see a way forward financially, and health systems are relying on uh, relatively you know static protocols in which to try to meet, you know, diverse needs of patients. And the reality is, it just doesn't work when you look at the overall performance. So, patients, just like uh, consumers in any other marketplace, are looking for tailored approaches where they can feel they uh, are understood, and they've got a way in which to meet the obligations in front of them. Most patients candidly do want to pay, they just can't find a way forward. So, very simply, if you're tailoring the financial Uh, plans and the experience to the individual patient, the patient is going to buy in more and have greater cooperative incentive in which to go ahead and uh, perform, and that's going to solve the problem of engagement, and it's going to help solve certainly the problem of uh, revenue.
0: So far, this idea has has borne out the way that you thought it would in in your research?
3: Yeah. So, uh, the study that we did, we studied about 800,000 patients uh, over about eight years. And we looked historically at their payment levels and what were the balances in the clinical context in which they paid. And as you track these folks over time, you can see their payment behaviors are changing as balances are moving up and down. So the central idea was based on the data, we were able to see pretty clearly in the empirical evidence that as balances move and get into a range that patients can afford, they pay at a much higher degree. And interestingly, we see that that kind of inflection point is somewhat binary, meaning that if you are right at the level of what someone can afford, they'll pay it, but as soon as you get a dollar or $5 after that, they simply can't afford it because they're readjusting or rethinking where to spend their dollars other places. So, the idea is to create this kind of optimality where the patient can afford uh, the amount that's in front of him or her, at the same time, that amount is going to bring the greatest degree of revenue opportunity.
0: So I'd like to talk about price transparency for a moment, Um, obviously a very hot topic right now. You say you have a, a solution that'll make it simpler for patients and for providers.
3: The premise behind transparency is that there'll be a market efficiency associated with it. In other words, if you go and you see a price, right, an informed consumer can make a reasonable decision relative to if that price is meaningful from a value and a quantity perspective, in healthcare, what's happening is the, the, the large initiatives from relate to showing folks prices. But the problem is, in this market, the consumer can't be informed by simple price because you need to have a much deeper understanding of quality and quantity, which you know your typical lay patient isn't going to understand clinical nuance. So what happens is, is the patient is being presented with a price that he or she can't rationalize in terms of its value, which would be the consumer equivalent of going to purchase a car and you've got just a price on the sticker uh, on the windshield, but you have no visibility into the safety features of the car. And so the problem underlying transparency is it can't fundamentally achieve the goals because you've got uninformed consumption. That's the first problem. The second problem is that consumers are generally unaware of the inflationary factors that go into price. So any hospital executive knows that price is an effect of charges and there's really not a good kind of normalized basis in which to agree if a charge is uh really fair from a, you know, market perspective. The hospitals will of course build charges in relation to their cost structures, but they're variable. So the second problem is you have great variability in price. Therefore, you have consumers who, A, don't understand the quantity to quality ratio. B, if they're seeing it transparently in a price display, they still don't understand why the price is inflated to the point that it is. And as a result of that, you've got consumers who are effectively defecting because there's no price consumer confidence. And that's really what's the single biggest problem with price transparency. And unfortunately, the legislation, uh, surprise billing legislation and others is really not addressing, it's not going to core the core of the problem. So our premise is that every consumer has the ability in which to afford a procedure or set of procedures that's within line relative to their financial means and uh, wherewithal. And the idea that we're presenting is to redesign pricing so that pricing is bundled in such a way where every consumer in healthcare could effectively select and purchase care that within it's within affordability ranges for them. Now, interestingly, if you talk like this in front of health systems, uh, their immediate reaction is, wait a minute, you're talking about discriminatory pricing, and moreover, if I drop my prices, I'm effectively gonna lose money. Well, the reality of it is, to the latter, is that the economics don't show that. In fact, when you're pricing more correctly, you're getting far more economic engagement. And you can't have a marketplace where the consumers are effectively disengaging upwards of 91% of the time, is what we see in the data. So, pricing smarter means more revenue. As it relates to the overall engagement of the patient, and the ability for the patient to you know participate, you see greater satisfaction in other types of things where you currently don't get within the existing system. So transparency at the level that it's currently being deployed in the market can't work because of the reasons related to quality and quantity and expert consumption and informed decision making. The way that you combat that is redesigning prices in such a way that consumers can see the price and electively opt in and have full visibility into what they're receiving. And along with that, you need to provide the level of quality and indicators that are going to associate with the value for the price that the consumer is getting. So effectively, that's how we come uh, come at the market and come at the problem.
0: As consumerism plays a larger and larger role in the industry, healthcare organizations increasingly are looking for ways to respond to this trend. We'll be keeping an eye on Zadorian's work as well as other consumerism initiatives in the coming months. And if you're interested in reading that article that I mentioned at the top of the segment, it's called Patient-Centric Aid in a Consumer-Driven Marketplace, and you can find it at hfma.org.
1: Seeking a promotion? Motivation for your team? HFMA online education and certification programs may be the answer. Discuss your objectives with a professional development specialist today by emailing careerservices at hfma.org or learn more at hfma.org slash promote yourself.
0: In one week, HFMA will debut a second podcast. Our president and CEO, Joe Pfeiffer, is hosting Cup of Joe, a series of casual conversations with heavy hitters in the industry. You might have heard our preview episode in June featuring Gail Walensky from Project Hope. Last week, I invited Joe into the studio to talk about his new project. For this podcast, you're talking with some very influential people, but the feel of the podcast is pretty informal, like you're just meeting up in a coffee shop for a chat. What made you want to take that approach?
4: Well... First of all, Erica, I want to brag on you a little bit. I feel like in these podcasts, I've been learning from the master because you've done such a nice, nice job with with our podcast, and that inspired me to want to do my own. Oh, thank you. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, I, I guess uh, maybe a couple things. One is it's just my personality, and I think by way of a little bit of background. I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts all the time. I drive a lot between my home and the office. You know, I walk the dogs every night when I'm home. Um, you know, there's all kinds of different times. And um, I just find that's a great way to fill the times. I, I keep hearing about podcasts and I have more than I can listen to, but I learn a lot when I listen to other people's podcasts. And I just personally find that uh, a free flowing, casual conversation um, is uh, just more fun to listen to. Maybe more important for the listeners, however, is I think in an informal dialogue, rather than just a a question and an answer that's more formal. I think you uh, get more interesting answers and you can dive a little deeper into topics if there's a back and forth. So there's a a business component to it, but there's also, again, it's just my style.
0: Have you been surprised by anything you've heard? And do you think the listeners will be surprised by anything?
4: I don't know that I've been surprised. Um, I've learned a lot. you know, for example, listening to Judy Faulkner talk about her philosophies of you know running her organization—it's unique and it, and it's in many many ways very contemporary and and atypical. I think in terms of of how businesses are you know viewed as working um, or how she grew that thing literally out of her garage and you know what she focuses on today. I thought that was that was just a good learning environment for me. You know, another one is, again, I don't again, wasn't surprised, but listening to Paul Keckley, who's a good friend of mine, and we tease each other a lot, but I always learned so much from him. So now I don't know that I've been surprised, but uh, I'm just pleasantly pleased in how uh, the folks that we're talking to have been very comfortable in sharing with us in a, and again, in a very casual manner.
0: You ask all your guests this, but I don't think you've ever shared your answer What is your go-to hot beverage?
4: My wife and I, our go-to activity, um, you know, we don't do movies and we don't do sporting events. Um, You know, our uh, thing that we do is we go out to dinner. It's a good time to connect. You know, we're both busy people. I travel a lot. So those times when I can go out to dinner with her and just connect with her are really special moments for us. And I love uh, nice restaurants. They always seem to have really good, just plain black coffee. And so that's, that's my go-to. Now, for whatever reason, it might be atmosphere, who knows? I don't seem to get the same enjoyment out of a cup of coffee at some of the big-name uh, coffee shops. And so in those, I'll throw in you know, cream and take the edge off a little bit, um, maybe a little sweetener. But, but I'm, not a, I'm not a latte person. I'm not a frozen coffee person. It's either just black coffee in a restaurant or uh, throw a little cream in there at one of the big-name coffee shops. Uh, in terms of location, actually, my favorite place is a little place, uh, and I mentioned this in the introduction to our podcast, uh, it's a place called The Vault in uh, my little hometown of uh, Caledonia, Michigan, and uh, it's a tiny little place. It's an old bank that they redid into uh, you know coffee shop, and and again, it's more atmosphere, I think, than coffee, but um, it's a place where some of my friends will gather on Saturday morning, go for a run, and then sit around and... Uh, uh, get a cup of coffee and sit around and tell lies for, you know, an hour or so. And so this is just one of my favorite moments and favorite locations.
0: Cup of Joe is available on all your favorite podcast apps, as well as our website, hfma.org. You can listen to the first episode featuring Judy Faulkner of Epic on September 4th. It's a great interview. So grab a cup of coffee and check it out. With new government policies, higher patient volumes, and even new technologies changing how we plan for the future, hospitals and health systems will need ways to align their short- and long-term planning with concrete financial goals and objectives. In this segment, sponsored by Strata, we have five ways healthcare organizations can use strategic planning to prepare for the future. Prepare for value-based care and other market shifts. As the country begins to shift toward value based care models, it will become imperative for healthcare organizations to plan and account for how value based care may impact their financial plan. Optimize your plan with or without a budget. Strategic planning provides a way for healthcare providers to reassess their financial plan, iterating multiple times throughout the year with a rolling forecast or planning for the future as part of a traditional budgeting process. Look ahead while managing day-to-day functions. The benefit of strategic planning is in being able to manage everyday functions and teams while serving your organization's larger vision, planning for the future while shifting today's performance to account for change. Reinvest in the patient experience. With the many changes in policy and reimbursement, there will also be changes in the healthcare experience and a need to reinvest in that experience with increased operational and capital spend in areas that matter to patients. Plan for change before it happens. Healthcare organizations can use a strategic plan to evaluate future risk in the way of capital or supply investments, making decisions that fit larger strategic enterprise goals to help the entire organization prepare for the future and stay secure in the face of major change. This Fast Five was sponsored by Strata Decision Technology. With over 20 years experience in healthcare, Strata Decision Technology helps healthcare organizations with financial planning, decision support, and continuous cost improvement by providing our best-in-class, industry-leading, cloud-based SaaS financial planning, analytics, and performance platform. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Beyond the News is produced by Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Our president, CEO, and soon-to-be podcast host is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks this week to our sponsor, Strata. Please look for us on social media. You'll find us on Twitter at HFMAORG, and we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. And as always, if you have thoughts about our podcast or ideas for future episodes, you can reach out to our team at podcast at